Imagine you're running a company and you're about to spend however many millions of dollars on something. Launching a new flavor of beer, rebranding your product line or releasing a new car. Before you go all in, you want to have some sense of how people will feel about the thing you're making. Have the people inside the company accurately predicted how people outside the company will react. Call in the focus group. Bring in a few people, expose them to the thing the company wants to launch, make adjustments, simple, logical, potentially helpful, not universally appreciated, especially by people within the organization whose work is up for scrutiny. Okay, let's talk about Dr. Crane's show. Now, I, I know you've been eyeing this two-way mirror, but the only people behind there are data consultants, so please speak freely. There's no one involved with the show whose feelings could be hurt. If anybody says anything bad about me, I'll kill myself. Well, you do a perfectly good show. We're not going to change it one iota. Only a fool would listen to the opinion of every Tom, Dick, and Harry. I liked everything about it. On the other hand, it's, it's good to keep an open mind. That was from the sitcom Frasier. As you might remember, Frasier had this radio show. In this episode, the station decides to test the public's reaction to the show with a focus group. Frasier and his on-air collaborator Roz watched the group discuss the show from behind a two-way mirror, which goes well until... Manu, I noticed you've been quiet. Um, do you have something to say? Me? No. <laughs> We'd like to hear your opinion of the program. I don't like it. <laughs> it devolves from there. Frasier becomes obsessed with his one guy. Why didn't he like the show? It's a plotline that mirrors the real-life disdain that creatives, myself included, sometimes have for this standardized process of public approval. And yet, focus groups are ubiquitous. They have influenced movies, toys, packaging cars, magazine covers, advertisements, and even snack flavors for decades. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about consumer desires and the business of figuring out what we really want. Here to talk to us about it is Liza Featherstone, a journalist and author of the book Divining Desire, Focus Groups and the Culture of Consultation. Liza, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've literally written the book on focus groups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what credit can we give to focus groups? Broadly, how have they shaped what we consume? Focus groups have informed just about every product we use, our toothpaste, our cereal, the endings of our favorite and least favorite movies. We don't really think or um, talk very much about them. No, and I think a lot of people probably don't even know what a focus group is. If I try to think of a film or a sort of uh, you know, a cultural context where a focus group is mentioned or where we get into discussing you know, how a focus group comes together. The only thing I, that comes to mind is 12 Angry Men. What's the matter with you? I have a reasonable doubt now. 11 to 1. Well, what about all the other evidence? What about all that stuff? The, the, the knife, the, the whole business? Well, you said we could throw out all the other evidence. You're alone. I don't care whether I'm alone or not. It's my right. And the construction of a focus group, right, for those that haven't had the pleasure of sitting in on one, the way that I've experienced them, at least, is you know, there is a group of people in a room mm -hmm. and you know they all sort of sit around looking at each other as if they're in a therapy session. 
and somebody is leading the group. And then there may well be a two-way mirror um, where there's a group of people who are trying to steer the group in some way, although, of course, they wouldn't admit that. Absolutely. Yeah, you'll find that the that setup, uh, people sitting around a conference table with a one-way mirror in which the clients are um, listening in, often getting increasingly um, angry and upset because the people in the conference room either don't care enough about their product or don't like it. And that's more or less the standard setup. And it's always interesting, right? Because as in, I mean, I'm going to keep referencing 12 Angry Men because the construct is is so similar and, and at least my memory and I haven't done a group for probably 20 years. But there's always one person that comes in that already has uh, an assertion or a, an idea of what, what this is going to mean. Yes. So there's somebody who comes in and says they're guilty, period. Mm-hmm. There's somebody who comes in and says, you know, I've got to be at the baseball game at eight o'clock, so let's just get this done. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> yeah. those two voices are going to steer the conversation so much, right, that you can, you can really influence um, quite drastically what happens... For a company like Procter & Gamble or something, could be yes. huge. So can you take us back to when focus groups first started? So is there was there a moment when it was evident that you know, focus groups were a feature? Though it would take many decades for them to return to the political realm. That is actually where focus groups begin. They begin in earnest during World War II. We tend to think of World War II as being a good war, a popular war. You know, um, I go to a lot of baseball games and watch a lot of baseball on TV. And, you know, when we honor those veterans in the seventh inning stretch, you know, we sort of, we feel a little bad sometimes for the Iraq guys. But when we see those World War II guys, we, as Americans, we feel really happy for them. And we think, oh, their families must be really proud. You know, fighting Hitler was good. And so we tend to think that 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 sort of cultural consensus um, has always existed. But during World War II, that was actually not so. Um, Americans were tremendously reluctant to um, make the sacrifices that the government was asking to get engaged in another round of mass death after World War I. And so it required a lot of propaganda on the government's part and a lot of persuasion. So actually, playing these radio broadcasts from the government to groups of people was the government found to be tremendously insightful. It actually turned out the um, initial approach that the Office of War Information was the FDR government's office name, which sounds a little creepy now. So so they were focusing their propaganda on how dangerous and scary the Nazis were, how bloodthirsty, how ruthless to civilians. And it turned out that really backfired. When they would play that for the focus groups, people would say, "Uh, you know, if if they're really that bloodthirsty and inhuman, maybe we should just leave them alone. Maybe we shouldn't try to fight them after all. Right. Their message was scaring people silly. So what did they find that convinced Americans they should go to war? What was much more um, effective was arguing for the superiority of our democracy over fascism and, you know, that we had a better system that we needed to defend, that, um, that our, our system was more, more rational, more reasonable and appealing to people that way turned out to be um, much more fruitful, which, you know, were, were the kind of insights that never could have been gained simply by taking a survey, yes or no. It then right. becomes a, um, a very 
fruitful technique for um, advertising as you know, shortly after World War II, corporate America finds that its huge market in the government has dried up. Similarly, the academics pioneering the focus group find that their market in the government has dried up because the war is over. Um, so both find clients on Madison Avenue and Madison Avenue finds the people who can help them persuade Americans to, after many years of sacrifice, to buy more stuff. So that turns out to be the main use of focus groups for many decades afterward. They re-enter politics in the 1980s. In your book, you talk about, um, or you open it up, talking about Betty Crocker, who mm -hmm. up until now I thought was actually a real woman. <laughs> I didn't realize it was completely fictitious. <laughs> and this concept of how, you know, housewives like the idea of cake mix, but they weren't really That's buying right. it. Um, and through groups, you know, they, they completely changed the course of cake baking in America. That's right. In this, in this story, which, um, which, you know, is slightly, um, slightly apocryphal because people were, did buy cake mixes before this happened. But it did, um, it did apparently help the sales. By conducting focus groups, um, the company discovered that the housewives would feel much more as if they were doing something if they had to add an egg. There was a tremendous reserve of guilt around prepared foods um, in the mid-century because there was a lot of identity and investment wrapped up in in housework and doing it properly and cooking for the family and and you know being good mothers but at the same time the convenience of prepared foods was really compelling when you make a cake from a mix which do you want a fresh egg cake or a cake made with dried eggs for higher lighter tastier cake why fresh eggs of course but remember, all cake mixes are not alike. Betty Crocker cake mixes are different. They call for your eggs added by you at home. It's the only national cake mix brand that lets you add the eggs. By cracking the egg, we um, feel like we could do something. And I found that a, um, a sort of fun metaphor for the focus group itself, that, you know, we participate in it and, you know, it's not we're not really having much influence over the political elites, over corporate America, but we feel like we're doing something. You know, we feel like, right. you know, we're, we're, we're getting our opinion across. We're being heard. We're cracking the egg. So the other story I loved and one that actually resonates with me because our dishwasher um, <laughs> oh, yes. soap dispenser, soap powder drawer is broken. <laughs> so I lazily just lob a uh, a little cartridge, whatever they're called, into the bottom of the dishwasher. Yeah. But um, tell us the story of uh, how they decided yeah. that we needed to have a dishwasher door. Now that I'm attuned to this, I see these stories everywhere in daily life. But a couple of years ago, a um, a man came over to fix our dishwasher. And the problem was that the, um, the little plastic compartment where you keep the soap was um, broken. You know, I put the soap in and the door wouldn't close. It would just, you know, pour all over the place. So we get, had the man come in and take a look at the dishwasher. And, um, and he said, he said, yeah, I mean, it, we, we, we can't really fix that, but it doesn't matter. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? It doesn't matter. Like, isn't the, isn't there some sort of, you know, timed release? Like, doesn't that, isn't that door holding the soap in somehow crucial? And he said, no, it's just there because women like it. 
And I was like, what do you mean women like it? And she's like, well, um, women don't like the soap going all over the place. Like it all goes the same place in the end. It all swirls around and cleans the dishes. But women don't like that initial feeling that it's disorderly, like to like have the soap just spill out when you um, close the dishwasher like that. So, you know, it was one of those moments where you realized that not only is everything shaped by um, market research, but how much corporate America really has your number psychologically. So did you fix your dishwasher? No, door? to this day, the soap is still going all oh, over the place. Yeah, it would be ridiculous, right? I think we should lobby for them to be removed. I mean, he, was, he was there to demystify <laughs> it for us, and we appreciate that. Let's do a focus group and ask people how stupid they think it is now that they've got these doors on their dishwashers right. that are completely irrelevant. That's right. You have this story in the book about Barbie and why she looks the way she does. I love this story of, uh, of Barbie also because it's something that as, as kids, you know, I had a sister and, and a brother and my sister was not in the slightest bit interested in Barbie or Cindy. Cindy we had yeah. in the UK. Yeah. And Cindy, Cindy was not quite as voluptuous as um, Barbie. Uh, it was something that was, you know, discussed quite a lot in our house that it wasn't a very good role model and my sister certainly didn't want it. Yeah. But um, maybe you can give us a bit of insight into what happened with uh, Mattel and oh, Barbie. Oh, sure. Well, in the political world, the focus group is really um, used to um, to decide a message or a narrative or a particular campaign. Sometimes in the corporate world, it really might shape the product. And you see that a lot, actually. And one of the early examples from, from the mid-century was the development of the Mattel company's Barbie doll which is so familiar to most of us from growing up today, it turned out that the little girls really liked the grown-up look of Barbie and, and they wanted her to be even more grown-up, even more sexual. They liked that she was tall. They liked that she had these big boobs. She was really kind of an aspirational character for little girls who weren't yet tall, didn't yet have big boobs, you know, weren't doing grown-up things. And the mothers felt really kind of distressed by um, the precocious sexuality of Barbie. And in, in order to um, win over the mothers and their doubts about her, her disturbing sexuality, the Mattel company discovered they needed to um, make Barbie do more educational things, have career ambitions, you know, look like she was going to work, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So they were able in this way to end up with a product that was kind of titillating to the aspirations of little girls, but placating the moms who might be... Um, a little upset by her um, potential sluttiness. Barbie, you're beautiful. You make me feel my Barbie doll is really real. It's quite amazing, right, in this instance that they, so they listen to the kids. They listen to the kids. And then, again, in the company I used to work for, we had... Um, we had some controversy around um, Walker's Crisps, which is called Lay's here in, mm -hmm. the, in the US. Anyway, 
you know, fatty uh-huh. potatoes. And um, what they also had discovered was that there was this thing called pester power. And pester power was much more relevant um, and much more powerful than, you know, price point to adults or the positioning, um, you know, towards uh, the mm-hmm. actual buyer. So the focus for a lot of those brands that were, you know, around fatty goods, which in the end, um, in the UK, fats and sugars got into a lot of hot water and, you know, agencies were no longer allowed to even mention the idea that they were going to be pushing a product that would be really focused on pestering <laughs> their parents. But, you know, in the certainly in the 90s and early 2000s, the, the goal was on pester power, which sounds very much the yes. same insight and... Um, direction that Barbie was taking or Mattel was taking. Yeah, very much so. And I'm really glad you, um, you you zeroed in on that, that they were listening to the kids. I interviewed some market researchers who were really passionate about that in a very sincere way. And, you know, we think of that as being sort of awful and predatory because, you know, they're helping corporate America to, you know, understand what kids want so they can sell them more stuff. And it's often stuff that's not very good for them. But on the other hand, it's true that kids are not very listened to in our culture. And, you know, these are people who are, uh, you know, who are at least taking the time to um, listen to their opinions and find out what they want. And in a similar way, the market researchers have been listening to women for a really long time since well before second wave feminism emerged and demanded that women be listened to. Let's talk about some of the biggest market research flops. Yes. <laughs> um, if we talk about Ford, is it Edsel or Edsel? Edsel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Edsel. So tell us what happened. Was Ford listening to the market research or not listening to it? Yeah, yeah. So um, the Edsel launched in the late 50s, I guess probably 1957, was a really legendary market failure. Um, maybe you could describe the car for those who don't know it. If you look, if you have a chance to ever see one today, it is actually a spectacularly beautiful car. The grill was a little um, upsetting to mid-century people because it looks like a big vagina. Um, and that's, you know, people might have had some feelings about that. Can only imagine. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, old old car collectors are, you know, to this day really dedicated to it. It's a fun looking car. It was released with tremendous fanfare. And because there was a lot of publicity around the marketing and around the extent to which people had been listened to, you know, there was a um, a campaign called It's the You Car. Ladies and gentlemen, the Ford Motor Company would like you to see the new styling of the beautiful new Exo. More new ideas, more you ideas. You know, we asked you what you wanted and this is the car you wanted. So then when, um, when it didn't succeed, there was tremendous publicity around, you know, the focus groups that market research has failed. And this idea that it was market research that caused the uh, Edsel to fail has persisted today. Like even now, like if you look in the business press, if you Google um, failure Edsel, you will find like 10 stories blaming it on the focus groups. And what's really interesting about that is it's not true. All the problems with the Edsel, there were um, 
There were some mechanical failures, which of course have nothing to do with market research. There was a um, um, a collapse in the economy the year it came out. There were a number of um, of things that caused it to not meet market ex- expectations. But in fact, while there was some research done around the name, none of which the company paid any attention to, there was um, no market research done around the design, which as I've mentioned, really freaked people out. But people weren't consulted about that. Actually, uh, focus groups, especially given their psychoanalytic bent um, in the 1950s, would have really uncovered some interesting stuff um, had they done them, but they didn't. Um, so so it's actually, there, um, there really was no market research around it. So the vagina-shaped U-car had no real input from the consumer at all. Yeah. What was um, fascinating to me was the way the company wanted to blame the market research. And the rhetoric around that was, in in a sense, they were blaming the consumer. It was a way to blame the ordinary person for a corporate screw up. You know, they said, you know, we listen to you and, you know, people are just so fickle. That's what we get, you know, for, you know, trying too hard to, um, to, to find out what the consumer wanted. And really similarly, 30 years later, when Coca-Cola launches a, a product, New Coke, that is also a mm-hmm. disappointing um, market failure and, and takes it off the market, exactly same thing. Hi, we're New Edition. We're here to introduce the great new taste of Coca-Cola, the taste of today. Yeah, Coca-Cola blames the focus groups and blames the ordinary consumer for this problem. You know, we just tried too hard, which we're trying too hard to please the people. It's a fascinatingly disingenuous move, the way these myths around focus groups take hold in the culture end up serving as a way for us to um, blame ourselves for these spectacular corporate flops. And I mean, especially with a company like Ford, right? It wasn't the famous Ford quote. It wasn't actually a real quote. But the myth is that Ford said, if I'd asked the people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah, yes. And the Model T would never have been invented. So I imagine in that in that company, in that institution, there would have been some people that would have been quite anti the concept of, um, you know, doing research and going to groups and asking for their opinion. As would there be in a company like Apple, which, you know, it's famously said that, People don't know what they want until you show it to them. I can imagine that, you know, we're going through a bit of a transition at the moment, right, with people questioning, uh, you know, Tim Cook and questioning Johnny Ive leaving and whether or not, you know, they're going to be able to innovate in the way that they did because they don't have somebody visionary at at the helm of the company. Um, And if you're going to go and ask people what they want, yeah, a lot of the time people don't actually know. They want to be surprised, right? So can focus groups, um, can they work in a company like that? Steve Jobs was always making fun of focus groups and how dumb it was. He was always quoting that um, fictitious Henry Ford saying that you just quoted, which you're correct. Um, Henry Ford actually never said that. Um, if I asked people what they wanted, they would right. they would have said a faster horse. And what's interesting about that is that um, 
if you look at how Steve Jobs' Apple worked, the implication of the way that the media always writes about him is, you know, well, of course, he didn't need focus groups. He's just a genius and just intuitively knew what products were good. And, you know, people need to be presented with the, the good stuff and they'll just like it. And rich male geniuses know best, you know, it's like, it's, then that's sort of always the takeaway, right? Um, and and that's a common line of critique of focus groups is this sort of elitist, like it's just, you know, listening to people is for pussies, you know, like like these guys who, who really know don't need to, to use market research because they just know they're so smart. Um, and when you look at Steve Jobs' Apple, it's actually quite the opposite of that. The way that these products were innovated was actually a feature of... Um, a fairly horizontal workplace where the engineers and creative people were allowed a lot of freedom. Workers in the company's ideas were really listened to. They thought about what products they would like to use. Gosh, you know, we'd really like to be able to listen to music on our phones. Wouldn't that be cool? And they assumed that the public would like a lot of the same things that they liked. So I just think it's so interesting that the ideological way that Steve Jobs and his disregard of focus groups is always used when actually the truth is something to me more interesting than that. But it's a vote of confidence, right? So I think Steve Jobs um, gave his employees and gave the mm -hmm. people that were, you know, media arts labs or those companies working around them, he gave them a vote of confidence by hiring great people and allowing them to make the decisions right, as opposed to going to the general public who, you know, weren't in that industry, didn't have 10 or 20 or 30 years engineering or mm -hmm. design experience to make those choices for it's them. It's true, but you can also look at it as more consultation rather than less. It's a right. process in which a variety of people are constantly consulted rather than um, just one really clever person. Yeah. And that was always a conflict in the agencies that I worked out was there were companies that like The Economist that didn't do any research mm -hmm. or did limited amounts of focus groups, but relied very heavily on the construct that um, the, the agency would create work, they would share it internally, and there would be a sort of internal vote as to which posters mm -hmm. would run. Mm -hmm. And then those, those would be filtered down and presented to, to the client who would then make a decision as to, to what would run. So that would be classified as a sort of you know, Steve Jobs internal focus group approach, right, I guess. Right. And then there were clients like Procter & Gamble and Unilever that would basically take any good idea. This is in the eyes of the creative teams, in the eyes of the agency. Any good idea and wring every ounce of creativity uh -huh. out of it. So that if you had something fantastically creative um, and you put it in front of, you know, 20, 20 people in a room, generally they would kill all of the creativity <laughs> and it would get down to um, something like the Daz doorstep challenge where, uh, you know, a man would ask a housewife whether or not her whites would look whiter with this or with that. Yeah. And that would be the campaign, which, you know, for a creative team was uninspiring. It can be devastating. Yeah. I mean, we had, there was a, definitely a feeling that those creative groups, those focus groups killed oh, creativity yeah. and you would avoid them at all costs. And that's real. It's very vulnerable. Right? You're, you're, I think you are very vulnerable as a creative, right? So you've put your, in theory, you've put your heart and soul into yes. this project and you've you tried to push the boundaries and you've got through that first hurdle of getting through that 
you know, the client and they've agreed to, to do it and they've agreed that you put it into testing. So they spend some money and you're vested. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're going to open it up and be, be there for criticism. What I really concluded after doing a lot of interviews on this was that, you know, corporate elites make decisions that are going to be profitable and a lot of people's labor and creativity and desires and just work they've put their heart and soul into gets overlooked or shortchanged somehow. And the focus group often makes a really good scapegoat because again, it allows us to um, blame the ordinary people instead of the people at the top who really make power. So, you know, the focus group isn't really the reason why our movies are shitty. I mean, the reason for that is a drive for corporate profits out of which, you know, market research is a small part. But I I did find there is a great desire among the general public as well as among the elites to blame focus groups because the idea that a large mass of stupid fellow citizens um, is what is causing the problem is always appealing. So what's the future for focus groups? Are we going to see it continuing the way it's always been or is it going to be more of a reliance on on Twitter, on social media? Is Donald Trump using social media as a, as a focus group for his decision making? With social media, we're sort of in a 24 hour focus group. I mean, we're just, we're constantly volunteering our opinions, our consumer habits and everything about us becomes data for corporations. And um, unlike in the traditional focus group, we're not even paid for that. You know, I mean, remember like a focus group participant, you know, gets snacks, you know, gets a couple hundred dollars. You know, we don't even get that. (laughs) So easy to please. (laughs) So that's certainly a part of the future. On the other hand, the actual focus group where you show up, give your opinion, talk to people behind a two-way mirror, the demise is often being predicted by the business press. Like every few years you read about how the focus group is dying or dead. The spending numbers, uh, market research spending numbers don't really bear that out. Corporations do seem to continue to use in-person groups. Interestingly, I also found focus groups are used in ways they didn't used to be used. So not only for political campaigns or product decisions or marketing decisions, but also um, more and more they're used at the municipal level on public policies. So, you know, to your town is hiring a new school superintendent or considering new designs for the downtown. These kinds of things are increasingly focus grouped. And that seems really interesting to me and um, and also slightly troubling when people are asked about it. So why'd you come to this focus group? You know, why not show up to the school board meeting instead and, you know, make your voice heard that way or talk to your representatives? People feel more confident sometimes that a focus group will actually be listened to. Like there's some way in which the culture of consultation, the culture of market research, in some ways feels a lot more real to people than the actual mechanisms of democracy. And that's something that should trouble us. Yeah, that's fascinating, right? Because I think there's also a certain amount of anonymity 
behind a focus yes. group as opposed to standing yeah. up in your school board meeting yeah. where it's where you're very visible you know and and you get paid 100 bucks and you get some snacks as you that's said. right but the it's true the anonymity i i think does feel real to people like this is my real opinion you know if i mm-hmm. if i were to stand up in front of all these people i might censor myself and that's what we're growing up with right i think we're growing up in a society where there is a certain degree of anonymity and people feel very comfortable that's right. with it we use a tool uh, in WeTransfer called Office Vibe, and Office Vibe allows you to give anonymous feedback to the company. Um, you know, we're not a big company; we have you know 170 odd employees. But um, despite having you know monthly sort of breakfast meetings where everyone gets together, there is a preference to you know to ask those hard questions and sometimes quite brutal, mm-hmm. <laughs> brutally hard questions um, through Office Vibe, where you know, they can just sort of get things off their chest and, and not be confronted even though it's a relatively safe space. But I think, you know, those the tools that we have around us, be it Twitter or Facebook or Office Vibe, focus groups, whatever else, are increasing that amount, um, that distance I yeah. think, between between people. And that's a, that's a preference. I think people are choosing for it. Right? And, and it's funny because um, the people in that anonymous space feel free to be negative. What I find interesting about the 24-hour focus group that we're now in is, you know, now we're all in that position. Like we're all constantly Mm -hmm. um, hearing from anonymous people who don't like us, don't like our ideas, you know, and uh, this experience that used to be somewhat limited to the corporate client is one that we are now having all the time. I once uh, did a focus group and uh, this this is my horror story of focus groups. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've got one to share too. My horror story was I did focus groups for scratch cards in the UK. So the National Lottery was um, relatively new. We didn't we didn't have one previously. And the agency I was working for won the National Lottery business. And uh, I got gifted the scratch card business and had to go and do groups talking to, you know, the scratch card customer, who is not somebody who's just buying, you know, one scratch card a week very cautiously for a pound and then, you know, going to the cinema. This is somebody who's you know, spending 30 to 40 percent of their weekly earnings right. on a combination of scratch cards, um, alcohol, cigarettes, whatever else. Right, right. And, you know, desperately believing that they're going to win something. So it's right. just basically a tax on the poor. And having done workshops and focus groups with these guys, I am never going to work on scratch card business yeah. ever again. <laughs> yeah. You participated in many focus groups as part of your research. What was your worst or weirdest experience? One of the most fascinating to me was um, I think that the similarities to group therapy are very striking. This group was all women and we were to talk about our um, our feelings about aging. They don't usually reveal who the client was, but somehow we figured out it was Yahoo, the internet company. You know, we had, we had feelings. We, you know, we had a lot of feelings about it. And, you know, we go around the room and um, a lot of people feel pretty positively. You know, this is women over 35. So, you know, it's not like we're, you know, getting our hips replaced yet or anything. You know, we've got this woman who's a like a truck driver and that's like her lifelong dream and she's finally doing it and she's like met a man she loves and he's going to drive the truck too they're going to do it together and you know we're all really happy for them and we say so we've got you know different people with sort of also heartwarming stories about getting older and doing their thing and you know then we've got this actress she's really pretty 
And she talks about how, you know, now that she's over 40, she's never felt more sexually desirable. You know, when when she's done, the woman after her talks about how she feels really invisible. She feels that um, men don't notice her now that she's older. Um, She feels like she's really lost her good looks and her sexuality. She starts to cry. We all kind of feel bad for her. We don't really know what to do. And then the um, the lady, the actress, with all the young men after her, gets uh, gets after her and gets really kind of turns on her and says, "The problem is your attitude. Um, <laughs> oh it's not your age. It's you." <laughs> We're all like sitting there, kind of shocked and not knowing what to do. Clearly, um, Yahoo had learned a lot about our feelings that day. I'd be very interested to see what Yahoo's going to do with it. Absolutely. That's our show today. Special thanks to Liza for a fascinating history on the Focus Group. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby. Our supervising producer is John Asante. And our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It really helps spread the word, blah, blah, blah. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from We Transfer, produced in association with Neon Hum Media. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Influence is brought to you by Wacky Mackie. Never miss a nigiri again. Now we're joined by Matt, the most loved salesman in the whole world, who's been trialing Wacky Mackie for the last month. And he looks amazing for it. Thank you. And I feel good too, Damien. Uh, with Wacky Mackie, it takes all the stress away from where to go for sushi. Do I want to go somewhere that's traditional? Do I want to try that conveyor belt? Do I want to go somewhere that's really fancy? And when is it even fresh to get sushi? Is it the beginning of the month? Is it the middle, the end? Now with Wacky Mackie, all of those frustrations, all of those cares are out the door because I have fresh sushi delivered to my door every single morning. Does it fit through the door? Um, well, I, I, have, I have the Wacky Mackie sushi door, which is, is basically a doggy door. But And Matt, tell us about the crispy rice option. So the crispy rice option is uh, is going on right now through promo code uh, Wakimaki Crispy, um, where you get a free supply of crispy rice delivered to your door. Again, uh, at, at the convenient hour now, seven thirty-five and eight 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 oh six a.m. Wacky never miss a nigiri again. I can't think of life without it. Uh, I could, but it's still really it's really nice to have.